Today's episode is with Matt. Today. <laughs> Just reviewing stuff in GitHub. Uh, you say this way. politely. So there's shifting left, which I think is a good thing. And DevOps has been great, and it's allowed a lot of visibility into processes that were just sort of the mystery thing that the sysadmin did back in a corner office somewhere. I, produ I produced 20, 30 findings in a pen test, probably, and that's a pretty noisy pen test. Handing 666 issues to a developer is just a way for them to go, you know what, this if is I'm investing time or money towards a problem, am I avoiding future instances or am I solving a one-off? Those are the things to avoid. Like those are fundamentally non-stop, non-negotiable. These have to be nailed down. Understanding that improvements are going to be iterative, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, you have to start slow. It's the whole boil the frog idea. Hi everyone, this is Purushottam and thanks for tuning into Scale to Zero podcast. Today's episode is with Matt Tesoro. Uh, Matt is a DevSecOps and AppSec guru who specializes in creating security programs, leveraging automation to maximize team velocity and training emerging and senior uh, security professionals. Uh, when not writing automation code in Go, Matt is pushing for DevSecOps everywhere via his involvement in open source projects, presentations, trainings, and new technology innovation. Uh, it's it's wonderful to have you uh, with us, Matt. Uh, for our audience who may not be familiar with you or your work, do you want to briefly share about your journey? Oh my, it's been a journey. Um, so I started out life, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll try to wrap this up quickly. I started out life actually as an economics undergrad student at university because I didn't, this is early days, this is late 90s, and computers weren't as much of a thing as they are today. And I got almost through my degree before I realized, wait a minute, people will pay me to fart around on computers, which I already like to do anyway. So I, I, I did the math and it was quicker for me to graduate with my undergrad in econ and get a master's in MIS, which is what I ended up doing. Um, I worked for a telecom company it's a very strange beast. Their IT operations were in Texas. Almost all of our customers were in the UK, Netherlands, France, and Belgium. Um, mm -hmm. So if I messed up as a developer, and I was a developer, a software developer initially, if I messed up as a developer, I had an angry Belgian calling me at like 2 a.m. yelling at me, get out of bed and go into work. And yes, this was long enough ago that you didn't remote to work. I actually had to drive my car to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was great. I wouldn't recommend that. And you don't have to do it anymore. So it's okay. I went from being a developer to running a bunch of systems for the uh, Texas A&M University, the business school there. Uh, that's mm -hmm. where I kind of caught the security bug, went from there to doing pen testing. I did pen testing for a number of years. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's fun to creatively think about how to break into systems. But after a while, uh, it just felt like it, it was like every Monday, here's your URL, here's your creds, go beat up on this web application. By the end of the week, write up a report. And next week, it was the same. And after doing that for several years, it, it, I, I mean, I hate to say it because it was still fun, but it also just kind of got monotonous. And so mm -hmm. I went and joined Rackspace and started their product security team back when Rackspace had their own cloud. And so we owned, the product security team owned the entire cloud infrastructure for Rackspace, everything that made it run from the iron up. Um, mm -hmm. And that was a heck of a challenge and quite a fun place to work. Worked there for a number of years, worked at a couple other large corporations, worked at uh, Duo Security, which is a really great startup. Um, and now I am the CTO and co-founder of Defect Dojo Inc. That's that's quite a journey, all the way from economics to pen testing to uh, running your own company now, right? Um, so I'm curious, like today, what does your day look like? Ah, my day look like. Mm -hmm. I usually start the day with a large cup of coffee, a very large cup of coffee, um, just because I'm a I'm, I'm a bit of a coffee snob. I roast my own coffee, so I have a friend wow. who, who got me caught do got or taught me to do that, and now I'm stuck. Um, but I started the day with large coffee, and actually, um, for the last shoot, since I was at Rackspace, we created this thing called Defect Dojo, um, mm -hmm. which is an open source uh, vulnerability management platform. And every morning, I go and I look at the what's come in that night, either issues or PRs, review those, and that's kind of how I start my morning. It's a, it, it, it sounds like an odd thing to say, but it's a nice, easy start to the day, <laughs> just reviewing stuff in GitHub. Uh, somehow, mm -hmm. I enjoy that. And then it's whatever the day has for me. This could be customer calls. 
This could be doing something like this, being on an interview. I'm also currently on the board of directors for the OWASP Foundation. So occasionally mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing board meetings with the OWASP board or handling some kind of issue with that. Um, and then it's just work stuff, which can be anything from very technical issues, like nuanced bugs that we find in, in our software, or it can be setting up systems so that we can be successful and doing automation and trying to, to me, a lot of what I find, and this is true beyond just security, actually, now that I think about it mm -hmm. as a co-founder, but visibility into what's going on is so huge. And so I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm currently working on bubbling up as much visibility as I can about the various pieces of software and processes in, in my current life um, so that we can make better judgments. Because a lot of times you sort of get caught, right? As, as any level of an employee with, I have to make a decision. I don't mm -hmm. have really good information. So it's like, I either guess and get lucky or I find that information. And sometimes finding mm -hmm. that information can take forever. So I, I like to have things presented, even if they're not necessarily useful every day, all day long, there are times mm -hmm. when you're like, wait a minute, what is the best or the most used something, right? Well, boom, if I have a list of how many people are using what, I can go look that up quickly and answer that question. Right. Yeah. Uh, sounds like you have your know, uh, hands full with a lot of activity all the way from being in uh, fixing bugs or uh, reviewing others code to running a company, right? Uh, so, I'm excited to talk about some of the things that uh, you have been doing for some time, right? Uh, so let's start with the topic of DevOps. So DevOps practices have been followed for years, uh, but security was never a core part of the process, which sort of led to the DevSecOps movement. Um, the core idea is that you address the security concerns as soon as possible in the development cycle. Uh, with that being said, what's your uh, thought? How is that transition going from Dev DevOps to DevSecOps? Yeah, so I'm, I'm seeing lots and lots of people adopt the idea of DevOps or DevSecOps or whatever you want to call it. There's all sorts of names for it these days. Um, mm -hmm. So it is definitely there and it's a goal for a lot of businesses. But I think there's a, how do you say this politely? So there's shifting left, which I think is a mm -hmm. good thing. And then there's shifting left without the F in shift which is a different thing to the left um, mm -hmm. that you probably don't want to do. So like, I, I do have some concerns about doing everything as early as possible because there are some things you can't do. I, I ran into this very thing at Rackspace. We were running a cloud. You have many, many, many services all doing different versions. Finding an environment that matched the new version of, say, compute with the old version of all the other parts of the cloud so you could test it while another group was launching a different part of the cloud with the new version, but all the other things, the same version number, like these get really complex and you can really only test those interactions in a live running environment. So I think shifting left is great. I think you have to do it uh, with a little forethought though, because not everything can be shifted left. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing is that, um, I think DevOps has been great and it's allowed a lot of visibility into processes that were just sort of the mystery thing that the sysadmin did back in a corner office somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and they were all very manual and now that they're repeatable, I think that's a huge win. Right. Um, but the thing is when, when you're doing DevSecOps, you're gonna surface a lot of issues, right? If you start looking mm -hmm. around and flipping over rocks, you find things. And having a place to put those results and pre-filter mm -hmm. them because some of them like anyone who's ever used a security tool knows they're going to say, oh, my goodness, this is bad. Right. And you look into yeah. it and you're like, well, actually, that's not bad because A, B and C. That's actually a false yeah. positive. But if you push, I've seen some people and it just makes me die a little on the inside, want to run a tool and push results directly to the developers. And it's like, stop. <laughs> you need to have some place to store and pre-filter those before you push them on um, mm -hmm. because... If they're not build breaking items, uh, if you are doing CI/CD and breaking builds on things, you still may want to handle them, but you don't mm -hmm. need to. You don't need to handle all of them, and you need a human in there somewhere to say, okay, of these five things that the CI/CD run is complaining about, three of them are actually actionable, two of them are false positives, and of those three actionable ones, this one we really need to fix because it's spooky. The other two, we'll put those in the backlog. We'll get them sorted out, but they're not crucial. So that, that whole idea of cadence 
and the speed I think has really pushed people, uh, unfortunately, in a direction of well, let's just shoot it all straight to the developers. But you can't dump uh, that stuff on the developers and expect them to do this thing called developing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it gets overwhelming, right? Uh, and that's where, uh, as you are highlighting, like there has to be that person in the middle who helps with the prioritization. That hey, there are let's say twenty items out of those. We only need to focus on the three. The rest seventeen can be put it in the backlog. So, if that's the case, like how can organizations address that challenge when they are sort of transitioning from DevOps to DevSecOps? Yeah. So, uh, as you're doing this automation, if you do it right, you're going to produce a lot more results. Right, and and it used to be. I mean, I can remember the the good old days of pen testing. I produ- I produced twenty thirty findings in a pen test, probably, and, and that's a pretty noisy pen test. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write it up, you submit it, and you were done. But if you do automation, you can have twenty or thirty things happen in one review of, say, some source code. Or goodness, I had one time. I had I, I jokingly called it the static analysis of the beast. I ran SAS against something and got 666 findings, right? Like the number of the beast. So that's just like handing 666 issues to a developer is just a way for them to go, you know what? This is ridiculous. I give up. I'm just going to go get into my IDE of choice and write some code. So Mm -hmm. I think having that, like I said earlier, that single source of truth where all Mm -hmm. of the results can go to that first, and then you can do things like, do reporting out of that, right? Ideally, push things into a bug tracking system. You can actually learn what's happening across your software, right? Is one particular team really bad about injection attacks, but the other team has got that sorted, but their, say, library management is a mess? You don't know that till you start looking and getting that visibility that really helps you focus efforts on improving. So I, mm-hmm. that having a place that's sort of a a security team's area to to manage and look at those results before they talk to downstream systems like developers, like management, um, is very, very important. I mean, my, my mantra at Rack was, if you ever wanted to find my foot in your backside, you would pass down <laughs> a non-actionable finding to the dev teams, right? Because it's so hard to get that credibility with the dev teams, and you can blow it with one stupid reporting of a non-actionable yeah. or false positive. Yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I, I want to talk about that uh, in a bit. I have one follow-up question on this. Uh, so you highlighted that there are several uh, challenges when it comes to adopting DevSecOps, right? If I'm running a fintech startup, uh, growing startup, is it necessary? Do I need to... Uh, invest in DevSecOps? Yeah, so that's a great question. So to me, I would answer that is it depends on how you define DevSecOps, right? Should you create systems that automatically deploy things in a secure or somewhat hardened state? Oh, heck yeah. You should be using some kind of configuration management or automation to lay out your infrastructure. That's just mm-hmm. that's just like fundamental work, right? Um, should you like have red green deployments on your first day, the first time you push out your software to the world? Oh, heck no, right? That's very mature things. So I, it to me, it's picking your poison, right? Getting those fundamental things that particularly for a startup, you're limited on people, you're limited on time and resources, you're generally limited on money. So mm-hmm. you have to pick your battles carefully, but you, mm-hmm. the way I like to think about those things is if I'm investing time or money towards a problem, am I avoiding future instances or am I solving a one-off? And I want to put systems in place that avoid those future problems. The whole thing about configuration management and automation, that may not get me a, a completely hardened uh, deployment of, say, my product, but I have an mm-hmm. automated deployment. If I find a problem, it's tweak, say, the Terraform and reapply mm-hmm. it and get a hardened version of it. So it, it gives me the fundamentals I need to be quick and agile and adjust to the changing world, where if I had somebody who just handcrafted a bunch of you know commands in a terminal over an SSH session, yeah, you can set up something, but it's not repeatable. You know, God help you if that person gets hit by a bus, right? Like there's all those kind of issues around it that, that could yeah. be very detrimental to a startup. Okay. That makes sense. So, so start small, uh, set the basics right, and then depending on 
if you are fixing longer, like if you are setting up the pipeline in a, or setting up the process in a way which helps in the longer term, prioritize that over one-offs. Uh, so yeah, makes a lot of sense. Now, a, one of the things that you highlighted earlier, right? Like uh, organizations started adopting DevOps uh, for speed of delivery. Um, so when it comes to security, like adding security, sometimes the processes slow down a little bit, right? Not the actual deployment, but the overall integration of security into the DevOps uh, world. So how should organ uh, how can organizations find the right balance between the speed and integrating security in the DevSecOps? Yeah, this is a fun one too. So uh, to, in my mind, where this comes down to is understanding your risk profile, right? Not everybody is subject to advanced APTs. Granted, there's some baseline things you should do to protect yourself from malware in general and what have you, but not everybody is facing that kind of thing. So it's really finding your right level of practice, right? Which is a nuanced answer. I mean, unfortunately, what I like to think about is, are there existential items that you just can't have happen, right? If you're a financial institution, there are certain things that the bank regulators really, really don't like. Like those are the things to avoid. Like those are mm -hmm. fundamentally nonstop, non-negotiable. These have to be nailed down right now. There, there, um, the other issue is like tool cadence, right? So some tools you can run very quickly, uh, SCA tools against a repo, the software composition analysis, those are generally pretty quick. Those run mm -hmm. in, in almost real time, uh, static analysis and dynamic analysis, SAST and DAST can be very long running processes depending on the complexity of what you're testing. So okay. this comes down to a cadence issue, right? I don't want to slow things down, but I still want to know that my deployed app is secure from a DAST perspective or a SAST perspective. How do you handle mm -hmm. this? What I did at Rackspace was I set a cadence. So every, we had like the most aggressive team at Rackspace was deploying 75 times a week, which is nutty fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there's no, there's no time to even run a tool at that speed, any tool pretty much. Well, I mean, right. maybe FDA, but most of them, it's a non-starter. So what I ended up doing was deciding that I'm going to every, that like for the very first uh, CICD run, I'm going to fire off DAST and I'm going to have a way for that runner to know it's still running. And as long as it's still running, you just get a pass. And then when it okay. finds out that it's no longer running, I kick off a new one, right? And I'm just continually running that scanner as fast as I can run it, but skipping the times when there's a, a you know, a CICD run happening, but the tool mm -hmm. is still chewing through what's, what's been, um, what's been deployed. Okay. And this is where that, that, that uh, infrastructure automation can really help you because if you can have CICD fire off sort of a, a, a canary deploy that doesn't matter and isn't part of production, your, your test can take as long as it takes. It doesn't matter as long as you have the method to clean that junk up after that test is done. So that becomes a huge uh, value to the, to the process. I, I the really like that approach. Uh, so, sorry to interrupt. Like, I really yeah. like that approach where you are not blocking the deployment, but at the same time, you are uh, achieving the security uh, analysis as well, right? Like you are doing it on the side and as soon as you have the findings, you present it to the developer or the product team so that they can prioritize and work on it. Uh, so yeah, I, that's, that's lovely actually. Well, it's, it's a very pragmatic approach because both of those, uh, both teams in that, in that process have something to do, right? The dev team yeah. has things they need to get out the door and the mm -hmm. security team or product security team or dev secops, whatever you want to call them. They need to know that the thing that made it out the door is as secure as reasonably possible. And when those clash, then it, it, you can try as a security team to say no and be the no cop, but that gets you nowhere. So it's mm -hmm. much better to say, okay, we both need two things. They're contending with each other. Neither one of us can really win. How do I make this so that we both win? And, and that cadence thing was a huge, yeah, that, that, that really helped me a ton at Rackspace. Cause I ran into that to where these teams were moving so fast. I'm like, I can't even, and the, the flip side of it is, is if you do have a team that's moving fast, that also means that issues can be fixed really fast, right? Exactly. Worst yeah. scenario in my history was a SQL injection on a login page that lasted a year in production, which 
that was a year of having like my heart kind of clenched, just waiting for someone to pop. <laughs> yeah. And then that's, the that's opposite scary. end. Yeah. Oh, and then the opposite end was at Rackspace. We had one team that that team that did seventy five deploys a week. One mm -hmm. of the uh, one of the guys working for me was testing it, finds an issue, uh, gets an IRC, which is what we used at Rack. It says, hey, guys, I found this issue. If I do this, this bad thing happens. They're like, hey, can you send me the HTTP? Yeah, sure. Here's the HTTP request response pair. This is what the attack looks like. And they're like, okay, okay cool, thanks. And then 20 minutes later, they were like, we pushed a fix to production. We we're like, we haven't even written up the finding yet. So we literally <laughs> opened and closed the book because they, it was fixed before we could report it. So although it, it feels spooky when you have to make these adjustments for fast-moving teams, you do mm -hmm. get a benefit as a security person, right? Yeah. Instead of waiting, you know, six months to get a uh, thing released, it can happen in 20 minutes, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's a good segue to my next question, which is, um, like earlier you mentioned that uh, as a security person, if I go to uh, a development team with a non-actionable uh, issue, or I, I go to them with something which is a false positive or something like that, that sort of breaks the uh, trust, right? Uh, and that goes back to how the culture is set up in the organization, because not every organization focuses on security from the get-go, right? So how, like, I, I want to understand, like, how you have done it in the past or how you think about it. Like, like how can organizations ensure that the security mindset at least is baked into uh, the teams from the beginning? rather than doing it a year later, right? As you highlighted, like there was a SQL injection issue, which was there for a year. But uh, if the organization had the security mindset, could that have been resolved within a month instead of a year? Like, how do you think about it? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, with that one year SQL injection, that was about the cadence that they did releases. So that was just a, oh, okay. a, a not high performing organization. <laughs> I, well, that's not true. They did they did two releases a year. They couldn't mm -hmm. fit it into the, the next one when we found it, so it had to go a full year. It was really painful. Okay. Um, so that's more of an organizational uh, agility issue in that one year of SQL injection. Ugh, mm -hmm. Still makes me cringe. Um, but generally <laughs> speaking, I, I think it boils down to being just really pragmatic because I think a lot of security people try to be purist and I'm as guilty as the next person about doing that early in my career where I would just rail and fight against the man and no, you can't do that. That's not right. This is broken. We have to drop everything and fix it. Yeah. And I just realized all that got me was like not being invited to important meetings and otherwise being shunned by my peers. So mm -hmm. I needed to change. And, and so it, it came down to very pragmatic, thinking and empathy about the situation that the other party's in. So another great example of that. Also at Rackspace, I learned so much there. It was a great crucible to learn stuff in. Um, we had an issue that affected our entire compute or a large portion of our entire compute cloud. So this is tens of thousands of machines that need to have something done to them to address an issue. Mm -hmm. Well, it, you, you don't just like update and restart 10,000 machines that are actively <laughs> hosting people's cloud infrastructure. So this right. is a very complicated process. It was a really ugly problem. Um, how do we resolve it? Well, prior to me getting there, there had been this idea of SLAs around mm -hmm. the criticality of the finding, very standard practice. You know, a critical is so long, a uh, high is high a is little bit so longer. Long. Yeah, yeah right. that thing. I threw that out because okay. under that SLA, this restart 10,000 computers was supposed to happen in 24 hours. Like that physically isn't gonna happen. Just period, <laughs> <laughs> right? So unless we wanna like disrupt every, all of our customers, which was a mm -hmm. non-stop. Yeah. So how do, what do you do? What I came up with is I changed the SLO definition to say a fix in place by X was mm -hmm. a mitigation plan in place by X. Oh, so 24 okay. hours for a critical to have a mitigation plan in place. So what did we do? Mm -hmm. I sat down with the compute team. We talked through all of the, the really ugly wrinkles about making this fix happen. <laughs> and we set a timeline and I put a date in my calendar mm -hmm. um, that said they say they'll have it fixed by this date. And then I backed up three weeks 
and put another thing in my calendar that said, hey, check with the compute team and see how they're doing on problem X, right? And it just changed the mindset because instead of coming to them and saying, oh, no, no, we have a, we have a one-day SLA, you have to have it fixed in a day, which was complete hogwash. That was never mm -hmm. going to happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so by changing that conversation to, I don't need you to fix it, but I need to have a date. I can put in a calendar and a plan in place that I can tell management, this is why we're working to make this better. That's all it takes. And it, it, it completely changed the nature of the conversation at the table because unfortunately the, the team that I was dealing with had dealt with that critical must be fixed in 24 hours thing and done some Herculean efforts to fix former bugs that they didn't want to do again because it made their lives awful. And so yeah, yeah. we were able to come to a reasonable accommodation. And this is that empathy and understanding both sides have, you know, uh, both sides have issues that they have to confront and how do you find that middle Makes ground? Sense. So one, uh, I, I I like how you put it, right? Like security teams think uh, that all the security issues should be addressed. Like very much like how QA uh, teams sometimes take it as well, right? That, hey, if I have found a bug, you cannot accept it. You have to address it, right? So it's, it's uh, very relatable. Now the question is, any uh, tricks or tips you have for security team members to, let's say, work with other teams to make sure that things get prioritized properly. Yeah, and, 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 and a lot of that comes to what I mentioned earlier. It's the empathy thing, right? Just understanding where they're coming from. And I think this is where I was a little bit fortunate in that in my early background, I was a developer. I dealt with this junk. You know, as a developer, I dealt with the, hey, somebody hands you a PDF of like 47 findings, a third of which are bunk. And I have to burn a day or two to disprove these things that they're not really vulnerable and, and then go fix the things that are. And by the end of the process, I'm just angry at the world, right? It just didn't, mm -hmm. it didn't work, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think having that empathy and trying to get in the shoes of the people you're dealing with, and I mean, shoot, if you can pull this off, spend a day or two doing, you know, like shadowing the person that you're pr providing vulnerabilities to, see what their day is mm -hmm. like and understand how you can derail these things. And I mean, honestly, I've never seen a developer have uh, in their quarterly or annual goals, like fix all the security stuff. Maybe that's <laughs> happening, I've never seen it. So you are also kind of fighting the system where the developers are incentivized to get stuff out the door as quick as possible. That's what the business wants. Mm -hmm. But your job is there to get it out securely. So you have to find a way to make them understand why, like the, the fact that, yes, you can get this out today, but there's going to be an issue that we're going to have to have a fix. If you mm -hmm. have to sort of circle back on that issue, you're burning more cycles. Let's spend, you know, 10, 20% more now and not fix it in two weeks when you've forgotten even what you wrote for that feature, which is a lot of what development is like. Like, yeah, I wrote that a month ago. I don't remember. Like I've written so much code <laughs> since then, who knows? So I think yeah, it's it's yeah. mostly that. And then Understanding that improvements are going to be iterative, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, you have to start slow. It's the whole boil the frog idea. Like any, I will say like incremental improvements will be perfection every single time without mm -hmm. a doubt. And then without like instead of a, bang, a big bang kind of an approach, right? Oh yeah. I can't tell you how many people are like, we're going to do a static assessment of all 3000 <laughs> of our apps this year. And they get, you know, six months in and they're like, oh my God, we're at 200 apps. We're never going to make it. And it just peters. Okay, make it reasonable. Like I'm mm -hmm. going to run, we did, I did this at, at, at Duo Security. So I was able to containerize the running of a SCA tool for um, Duo Security and mm -hmm. wire it into the... I was going to say the GitHub, but we actually had multiple GitHubs at that time. Well, wired into the GitHubs um, or the GitLabs. Actually, I take that back. We had multiple GitLabs. But anyway, the, okay. we had like six different Git repositories that were used by different teams. That was an unfortunate okay. thing, but whatever. Um, but I wired it into that, right? And now I can run this very lightweight. I did a very, uh, I didn't turn on all of the features of the SCA tool. I ran it mm -hmm. in its sort of lightest configuration and mm -hmm. ran it across all of the apps. Now with the automation and everything else I did, I did was 46 Python repos in three minutes, which is yeah. stupid fast, right? But yeah. now what does that give me? That gives me the ability to one, 
I have a smell test across all of the apps. I know the ones that are mm -hmm. pretty clean. I know the ones that are really a mess. And now I can mm -hmm. prioritize. Okay, these ones are a mess. Why are they a mess? Oh, they're not doing... Oh, I see what they're doing. Their updates aren't happening correctly. They don't have, say, Wired and Dependabot or whatever. Let's get that going with these guys and get them shored up. And then I can move on to those laggards that, that well, laggards, they're not really laggards, the, the lower the Priority lower issue out people, yeah, and, and yeah. sort them out. So, I mean, some of it just comes to getting that visibility and then making, because you, you, I mean, I don't, I've never seen a security team that was bored or had too many people, right? So this is where you have to pick your battles very oh, carefully. Yeah. If like we spoke about uh, Rackspace uh, quite a bit, right? And we uh, uh, there is a lot of automation uh, aspect of it. But when it comes to automation, uh, let's say you are incorporating security measures through automation, uh, one misconfiguration uh, could introduce vulnerabilities, which could be difficult to identify and remedy. Uh, so. How should organizations uh, automate their security when it comes to cloud environments so that they do not introduce more misconfigurations or vulnerabilities rather than addressing them? Yeah, no, no, another good, great question. So I, I like to think of this and the way I proposed this before in meetings and whatever is my little saying is, you know there's going to be issues and you know there's going to be changes. Like that's a given with IT, right? You just mm -hmm. can't avoid that. So. Your choice is, do you want a pebble dropped on your head every day or a boulder at the end of the month, right? So how could I break this up into little tiny things that make mm -hmm. a work effective? So great example of that. Um, also, funny enough, at Rackspace, we, and I, although I did it in a lot of places after Rackspace as well, is for configuration management. So Puppet, Chef, Ansible, whatever you're using, Salt, doesn't matter. What we would do is the product security team would bless a specific tagged version in Git of a way okay. to deploy whatever the product was, right? So version three of uh, cloud files, deploy one, deploy 10,000 of those, I don't care. Now, mm -hmm. anytime they made a, a commit to that repo and changed the configuration, we had a say on the PR to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down so that we knew that once we got it hardened, we weren't having drift. And that changed the problem from, I have to deploy a thing, I have to you know, do a whole bunch of security tooling to assess the configuration and hardening of it, to I have to look at a diff of code. Oh, look, they're just changing this like unimportant part of the config to set a message of the day when you SSH in. I don't mm -hmm. care. That PR goes. And so mm -hmm. I, I've changed the process from being this large, body of work to just this little differential change, mm -hmm. right? So if you can do that kind of work, it makes it hugely beneficial. And some of this is just doing, honestly, I, I would, it's almost silly, but I'd call it pragmatic. I had mm -hmm. one um, developer I worked with at a different corporation that just because of the way the corporation worked and how uh, findings were passed out, I had to provide PDF reports which I really don't like. I'd much rather do things in a bug tracker, but whatever, mm -hmm. that's what they wanted. Okay, so yeah. here's my PDF report of the things I found. And I got mm -hmm. pinged by the developer and he goes, man, these, P these PDF reports are really a pain. Is there any better way for me to look at them? And it, we were using Defect Dojo at the time and you can export the findings in Defect Dojo as CSVs. And I'm like, sure, how about a CSV of all the issues in your product? He's like, oh my God, you can give me that? I'm like, yeah. So boom, I gave him a CSV wasn't official, wasn't the, you know, the normal process, but it right. made his life much better and we got stuff fixed, right? So it, it's, it's that kind of being flexible and having pragmatism um, is mm -hmm. really, really valuable. And the other thing that I found too that can be really a killer is, uh, and this, is, this happens more in bug bounties than in internal things, although I've seen it in internal things as well, is you get a report that says, this is bad. Right, this has this issue. Like, okay, how did you come to this conclusion? Like, mm -hmm. can you show me that it's bad? Where, like, for a web app, where is the res request response pair? These are things that, as a developer, I want to see. Like, I put a single tick into the search field and the app blew up. Okay, maybe that happened, but 
can you show me like the response that came back? Was it an error message mm -hmm. on screen? Was it an HTTP 500? I need more details. So providing sufficient yeah. details is hugely valuable to dev teams and can really win you a lot of friends because if you give them everything they need to fix it, guess what? They're way more likely to fix it. Uh, absolutely. Like, uh, th again, this uh, takes me back to uh, the QA and developer battles as well, right? Like, uh, without enough context, without enough details, sometimes developers feel frustrated that, hey, I'm not able to reproduce or I don't know if it even is the critical priority. So that's where adding that additional context or details helps uh, win points, like from a relationship perspective, and also it makes the developer's life easy as well, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Another thing that you highlighted, which I really liked is that you let's say you have a hardened uh, environment you have already set up any change you are just looking at that change rather than the entire hardened environment because you have already sort of uh, verified and certified in a way right that uh, uh, from a security perspective one of the for, one question to that is nowadays we use open source software quite a bit right where we are not only dependent on our own code but we are also using others code uh, and I think there was a recent study by Anchor where they highlighted that around 85 to 97% of the enterprise code bases use open source. So in that case, how do you think about one, like securing your, uh, your applications? Uh, and the second thing is, uh, how, how should organizations tackle these like supply chain uh, security issues? Yeah, no, oh. More great questions, just like a nonstop flood of great questions. So um, open source software, I, I think what people need to remember is open source software is free, but it's free as in puppy, right? You may get it for no dollar. You still got to feed and water and take the thing outside and deal with the maintenance of the thing. So yes, mm -hmm. you don't have to earn dev cycles to write it, which is great, but you still own the problem of keeping it updated and secure. So I think there's a, some of it is a mindset thing of like, hey, we get this for free and I don't have to worry about it. Let's use that. Well, mm, not really. And, and th this is what that 85% or 7%, whatever it was, shows you. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people have that mindset. The, the truth is that SCA tools have gotten pretty mature. I, I can remember when they were terrible and they've gotten significantly better. So the thing here is to use them as early as possible. Uh, for example, for the... the um, for the uh, Defect Dojo project, we have mm -hmm. Depend Upon, Renovate, and another one. Shoot, I'd Sneak, I think. I can't remember what the other one is. We have three different tools that look at our dependencies, either container-based, uh, libraries in Python, or the um, images that we use as the bases for our containers. Right, All that's mm -hmm. wrapped up. Every PR gets run through those. Right, So we are continually looking at this. Was it a pain in the butt to get up to date the first time? Yes. Yes, it was, because we weren't doing that initially. It's a 10-year-old project. At 10 years old, right. we weren't talking about SCA. But yes, we did have to sort of allocate a good chunk of time to catch up. But mm -hmm. now that we're caught up, it's, it's like I said in the beginning of this podcast, it's my morning routine. Oh, look, Dependabot says this library's out of date. I'll update it in the dev branch. It can soak for a week. We'll do a release at the end of the week, and we'll know it's okay or not based on the QA stuff that we do. So like, it, it is a very solvable problem if you can get over that initial hump. The mm -hmm. other thing I've seen that's been highly effective is to, for the, well, let me back up a step. I was at a DevOps days in Austin and I was speaking mm -hmm. to the, the person at the time was the CIO of American Airlines. Okay. And we're talking about this very same issue. And he said, you know what I did that just made it a, a world of good was I looked and did an inventory and we had, I guess they were a Java shop, if I recall correctly. I'm, I'm, don't quote me on that, but I think they were a Java okay. shop. But he looked and they had like six different logging libraries that different teams were using. And he was like, this is kind of stupid. Logging is a mm -hmm. thing that's been, it's been sorted out years and years ago in computer science. We just need one. And mm -hmm. I doubt that any one is so much better than the other that it's worth having two, et cetera. So he, he went to the, he challenged his dev teams and said, you guys need to pick only one logging library, authentication library, all the, the major pieces that you end up using open source for. You guys right. pick, I don't care, but we're not having three or seven, we're having one. 
and he let the dev teams duke it out, however they did, and they came up with an official list. Now, what was really awesome, he said, and he didn't expect to happen, was you're a new dev who just gets hired in to go write software for them. There's a wiki or a web page or some internal documentation that says, if you need to do logging, we use you know log4j or whatever the, the library is, right? And all of that kind of whatever inevitably happens when you have a new dev show up. Uh, well, that last place I used, you know, log, I like logging, you know, JavaScript library or Java library. I'll just grab that because I know it. And now you have mm -hmm. two. And then you hire somebody else new. And and she used to use a Weeby login Java library. <laughs> and so now you have three. And honestly, if you just had the information up front and told mm -hmm. them, no, no, this is a library we use. Oh, okay, whatever. Fine. I'll just use that. Right. So he got tons of benefit out of just telling the dev teams you so pick, standardize right instead of yeah, going standardized. everywhere yeah 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 and and he didn't impose it on them he said you guys pick which i think is crucial mm -hmm. right they owned their fate um but they yeah. could only pick one right which is that important sense. so a similar uh, or a related question to that is um vulnerabilities right like as you use open source libraries uh, it's not just with open source libraries, it is uh, with our code as well. Like there is a possibility of opening up some, like having some vulnerabilities in our code as well, right? So uh, like what's an ideal process or practice look like to sort of look at the vulnerabilities or prioritize them or address them? Uh, how do you look at uh, the vulnerability management? Yeah, oh, uh, as a whole, that's a huge thing. I, uh... Wow, I don't even know how to start answering that one. Um, there's a whole bunch of angles on this. Some of it depends on the tool. Some of it depends on the organization. Um, mm -hmm. From a tool perspective, uh, like let's say SAST. SAST is a great one to start with. SAST is mm -hmm. well known to produce loads and loads of results, right? So let's say you're working with a team, you run SAST because they haven't done it yet or they haven't done it in a while or whatever, and you get, I don't know, thousands of findings. Well, yeah. you know right away, that's a non-starter. I'm not going to hand them. Here's your 10,000 findings. Go fix this in a week or whatever <laughs> the SLA is. That you, so what happens when that, what, what, I, what have I done when that happens? I go and talk to mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the manager of the, that team and say, hey, look, you obviously have some issues here. Like, I, and I also understand that I can't have you sideline your entire team for two months to just knock out all these issues. So here's mm -hmm. what I'm going to do. I'm going to run this SCA or this uh, uh, SAS tool and only produce criticals and highs. And that gets us mm -hmm. down to like 300 or whatever the number is, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do that, right? And let's give us a quarter to work through that 300, right? Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the quarter, you, you have a hopefully a better state of that application. You can talk about, let's turn on the mediums and see what happens. Right. But it's it's being incremental and being smart about it. I think the the like the 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 contra case, the thing you don't want to do is go buy 12 different tools, run them on everything, produce tens of thousands of results and then dump them on the teams that need to go fix them. That is just a non starter. Um, and, and the so for me, the ideal case is. I have an ability to run tools, ideally in an automated fashion. If it has to be manual, that's fine, too. But all of that output goes to one place. And th this is what Defect Dojo does, so I'm somewhat biased in that regard, but I think it's really, really important. Because then at the, in Defect Dojo or in that place, I can decide, you know what, this is worth passing on to say Jira, and I can push mm -hmm. it into Jira. This other one, we're gonna risk acceptance. And we're just not mm -hmm. gonna, you know, I'm gonna kick it down the road for three months because it's just not worth it. Um, and mm -hmm. you can do those things if you have them in a, in a vulnerability management platform that allows you to manage those things before they go to downstream systems. The other thing that's super important about a vulnerability management thing like Defect Dojo is it normalizes the results. Every tool okay. produces different weird results, right? Some things they, they call it a, a finding, other things it's an issue, other things it's a vulnerability, different names, different attributes, it's annoying. And I want to report those in one standard way. Well, one of the things mm -hmm. Defect Dojo does is it reads in from, I don't remember what we're up to now, I think 168 different security tools and normalizes wow. into one data model so that now when I'm feeding downstream systems, I just have to understand what Defect Dojo knows as a finding 
to be able to push it downstream. I don't have to understand that, oh, my SCA tool thinks a finding is this, and my SaaS tool thinks a finding is that, and my you know, uh, cloud posture management tool thinks a finding is this other thing. I, I did that at first at Rack, and it was painful. I tried to write a thing for all of the different types of tools, and I went, no, I'm going to go bad. Yeah. <laughs> came up it's with better to standardize. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because then everything downstream is normalized. It all looks the same. And I can mm -hmm. feed, uh, like, like at, at some of the larger organizations I worked at, I would feed uh, compliance, like RSA kind of compliance tools from Defect Dojo because it was normalized and it didn't matter what mm -hmm. the tool was. Um, but it also allows me to do interesting things like we find out that our SCA tool hasn't, you know, maybe it got acquired by somebody and it, the quality's gone down. I don't really like it anymore. I want to shop around for a different SCA tool. Well, if everything mm -hmm. lives in Defect Dojo, I can swap out that tool and my process doesn't change. Right? As yeah. long as I can fit it into Dojo, the process is the same downstream. So it also mm -hmm. lets you, I mean, we didn't do this on purpose when we created Dojo, but it allows you to be able to tell vendors to go hit the bricks and get a different vendor that's performing better without interrupting how everything works at your, at your you know, security. I just have a follow-up question on that. Uh, like, uh, as you said, right, let's say if I run SAST, I might get thousand findings and, uh, out of those, one way to look at it is maybe we'll start with critical and high. Uh, let's say if I'm running a startup and I have limited time, people and budget, all of that, how do I prioritize between those 300? Like when I do critical uh, and high, I got 300, which w one is the first one? Or the second right, one, right. the third one. Yeah, this is where you where uh, what I've talked about earlier about understanding your risk profile and what are those things that are like existential to the business. Like I will violate this really important banking regulation if I don't do this mm -hmm. thing. Well, that becomes priority, but that's really where you need that human brain. Um, and that's another reason why that inner in between system that lets you know the security team review and make those decisions. It's it's not unlike uh, CVSS, right? It has the idea of a base score and then an environmental score, right? Mm -hmm. Security tools can give you base scores all day long, but they don't know your environment. That's really the value that a security professional provides to that okay. process is they should understand the context in which that's perfect example. So SQL injection in an application is bad, right? We'd all kind of agree mm -hmm. with that. SQL mm -hmm. injection, bad. So when I was at Rack um, running the product security team, one of our new guys came in and found a SQL injection. Um, and it just so happened that I was out at a meeting and the VP in charge of our group was happened to be walking by and asked this <laughs> fellow, hey, you know, what, what, what are you doing today? I was like, oh, I found a SQL injection. And they were like, oh my God. And they fired up this whole uh, incident response process well, they, they found a SQL injection in the system that allowed you to book rooms, meeting rooms at our home mm -hmm. office. Not that important of a system. Yeah, yeah. Certainly not worth context. Yeah, environment comes into picture, right? Hugely important. Yeah. So we spun up this whole incident response process for something that was completely unimportant, right? And and I don't I don't blame the the guy who found it. He was very new and I'm sure he was excited. I was excited the first time I found SQL injection. I felt cool. Like, oh, look what I found. Mm -hmm. I am awesome, right? But <laughs> you, know, you have to take a deep breath and go, okay, this is bad. But like SQL injection in Rackspace.com, oh my goodness. Like that's, yeah, pull, that's the, pull the on on cord and yeah. You know, yeah, alarms go off. But like if people can't book rooms as easily when they're in the home office, that's annoying, but no one's going to die. Customers probably won't even notice. Like it's mm -hmm. not going to impact revenue, uh, not, not worth getting excited about. Certainly not incident yeah. response time of excitement. I, I totally agree. Like uh, in like CVSS, as you highlighted, right? Like there are those three areas like base score, temporal and environment. But most folks just look at the base score at the face value and they're like, oh, it's bad. We need to address it. But that's where, as you highlighted, right? Like look, adding the environmental aspect helps you in better prioritization. It's kind of crucial because you're going to get more than you, your, your, you know, whoever is in charge, be it a dev or an ops team or whatever DevOps, whoever has to go fix those things, you're going to have more than they can fix in the allotted mm -hmm. amount of time they have. So yeah, like having, having a, a closer understanding. And it's funny, years ago, I got asked one time, like how, what would you tell 
people new to the field that they really need to think about. And it was context. Like that's everything. Like, yeah. Like I used to do, I, I still do trainings, but when I used to do trainings on doing web app pen testing, I used to tell the class, like I have a cross-site request forgery in one of the major websites on the internet today. I'm going to share mm -hmm. it with you, but I'm going to embargo it. I don't want you to tell anybody. And then I'd show them how you could do cross-site request forgery to Google, which is irrelevant, <laughs> <laughs> right? But I can send you a link that allows you to, makes it look like Google thinks you want to search for, I don't know, naked penguins or something crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> is that a vulnerability technically? Yes, yes, it's vulnerable. Is it important? Not hardly. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, like the context is so, so important, right? Yeah, it it yeah. really, really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And that, that, helps you, uh, helps the security team and the product team also prioritize and work on it. Uh, uh, so yeah, well, context is definitely key. It's everything. Yeah, you have to be inside of the Rackspace land to be able to even see that app. So like you're already an employee or a contractor or you have some sort of higher level of access anyway, you know, it, it yeah, those kind of, those kind of uh, decisions I mean, I, I understand the excitement, like I said, when you first find these things that you knew, like more power to you. I'm glad you're excited because you're likely to keep in the field and, and keep doing great work. But, you know, you do have to pump the brakes and think a little bit about, okay, this is really bad, but how bad really is it because yeah. of A, B, and C? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, and the, that's a great way to end the security questions. Uh, thank you so much, Matt, for the fun conversation. Uh, here are a few important points which stood out for me. The first one is context is key. When looking at vulnerabilities, do not just look at CVSS base score. Instead, understand your risk profile and add the environmental elements for better prioritization. Second one is in order to adhere to DevSecOps practices, be pragmatic. Uh, like instead of going big bang approach, start small and iterate so that you can incorporate security into the existing DevOps practices. Uh, the third one is when it comes to prioritization of findings, uh, whether it's from SAS or SCA or vulnerability management or any security tool in general, let the security team jump in and add context to help with information overload and prioritization. Thank you. Uh, we generally do another section, which is called uh, rating security practices. Uh, the way it works is I'll share a security practice. Uh, you need to rate it one through five, five being the best. And uh, you can add some context as well, like why you think it's one or a five or something like that. Uh, so let's start with the first one. Uh, conduct periodic security audits to identify vulnerabilities, threats, and weaknesses in your systems and applications. Yeah, I love this one. So this one, I would give a three. And the reason I would give it a three is it's it's kind of half the way there. Like identifying issues and weaknesses, great. That is a perfectly mm -hmm. good start. But you have to use that as a feedback loop to then create systems that don't have those problems in the first place. That's the real goal, right? Is to have systems mm -hmm. that launch hardened. So yes, like I love the signaling you get from doing those kind of periodic reviews or vulnerability management or scans or whatever it is. But the, the underlying question you have to ask yourself is, why am I finding these things? And more importantly, how do I make it so I don't find these things in the future? Okay, makes sense. Um, the next one is use strong passwords that contain a mix of uppercase, lowercase letters, numbers, and symbols, and change them frequently to, to avoid using the same password. Uh, change them frequently and also avoid using the same password for multiple accounts. So th this one, I'm going to get ranty on. I would give it a one because okay. this feels like we're back in the mainframe days. That was where this came from, right? When you could only store eight character passwords and it, it cracking them took a reasonable amount of time in the very slow computers back in the day. Um, that's no longer the case. And honestly, MFA and 2FA and shoot, FIDO are out. They exist. Like FIDO is mm -hmm. pretty new, granted. But MFA and 2FA, there's nothing new about that. That's been out for years and years and can buy you mm -hmm. tons of improvement for very little effort. So 
Yeah. Like, I question the value of rotating passwords. In fact, shoot, when was it? That was in 2007, where I was working at the time, a coworker of mine was rolling out an encrypted laptop program where we were giving, you know, doing a encrypted, this is when encrypted pass laptops were like a shocking thing. And we had to have mm -hmm. third party software to do it. Um, and the way he sold it was you have to have a, it was either 24 or 30. I want to say 24, a 24 character password. And we're doing these trainings. And I'm sitting in the audience uh, with the other people doing this training just to kind of get a vibe on the room. And he says this 24 character pass, and everyone's like, oh my God. Oh. He goes, and you never have to change it. And they all went, wait, what? Oh. <laughs> you don't have to change it? He's like, yeah. Why would you change it ever? It's dumb. Make it really long. Then you don't have to change it. So I think mm -hmm. we've gotten fixated on complexity when honestly a really long, not so complex password is harder to crack from a, a blind attack as an attacker. If I'm brute forcing, I'd rather have a complex three character password to brute force than a non-complex 10 character password any day, just in the amount of attempts I have to make. The numbers go up mm -hmm. crazy fast. So that just drives me nuts. Now, the, the other half of this, I will agree with completely, don't use the same password for multiple accounts. We have password managers they are built into the OSs now. There's tons of third-party ones. You have lots to choose from. I use one. I love it because, shoot, this is another thing that happened a long time ago, but many years ago, there was a LinkedIn compromise where they lost all the creds. And people were like, oh, my God, I have to change all my passwords. And I went, eh. I logged into um, LinkedIn. I updated my password. And I was done because all of my passwords are different. It really does make mm -hmm. life better. Now, like... Uh, this is not to be pejorative to people that are older than me, but like for my parents who didn't grow up with computers, when mm -hmm. they asked me this question about how do I do this? Well, two things. One, uh, I'm perfectly fine with you having different passwords for the important sites, but if you're going to localgrocerystore.com and downloading coupons, you could probably use the same password. Yeah. It's not that exciting, right? Okay, fine. Yeah. I'll compromise there. That makes sense. The other thing that I've, I've told several people that are getting up in years is go get an address book and write down all your passwords. Like if you don't want to have a password manager, write them down. And people are like, Oh my God, you're a security person. How can you tell people to write down their passwords? Look at the, look at the profile. My, my dad did this. How am I going to get my dad's passwords? I'm going to physically break into his house. Know that mm -hmm. the thing that's address book in his desk drawer isn't really an address book. It's a list of passwords <laughs> and then steal it. Like, that's a very different thing than having, you know, the same password on every single website. And, and you know, my dad did that and he has unique passwords for all of his stuff. So it's really, it, it worked out great for him. Like, yeah. and, and God that's bless a, him. That's if a nice workaround. Yeah, yeah, and it's reasonable. This is another thing where you have to be pragmatic, like being a purist and saying, oh my God, you should never write down a password for any reason. Mm, I don't know about that. Like, here's a reason. Like it makes mm -hmm. perfect sense. Yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, the last question is develop and regularly test and incident response plans to help quickly detect, respond to and recover from security incidents. Yeah, I'd give this one like a four uh, okay. because I know people don't like being um, the, well, let's just say the wet blanket, right? They, oh, what are we going to do if this happens? Ah, but it's not happening. Well, like, let's let's be, you know, let's think forward. Let's think positive. Well, guess what? Like bad stuff happens. The reason you have a spare tire in your car is because cars get flats. Although I did hear that EVs are starting to take them out, which is really weird to me. That's a whole other story. Uh, but so you need to, when an incident happens, and I've been in, worked lots of incidents and it's not fun, but the, when an incident is ongoing and happening, you need to have muscle memory. You need to know what to do. You need to have a plan. And planning under a panic is, is planning with like a stupid brain, right? You want to you plan with your smart brain when you can sit back, sip a little tea, and think through the problem, right? That's what mm -hmm. you do if you can do these proactively. So I think developing and regularly testing is a very good thing. I, the reason I wouldn't give it a five is I honestly don't think many people do it because it feels mm -hmm. like an also rank. And it's not a, it's not a sexy thing, right? You don't go to a conference and go, "Hey, man, we tested our incident response plan this week and it went fine." <laughs> right? No one gets excited by it, but 
you know, when things go crazy and things are on fire and everybody knows what to do, that's hugely valuable. Yeah, totally. Uh, totally. That makes a, a lot of sense as well. Uh, yeah. So, so that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining and sharing your knowledge. And uh, um, like I, I could see reference to your past work, your current work. So, yeah, it, it was a fun conversation. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, I enjoyed it greatly. These were all great questions. And I'm, I'm happy to share. That's how we all get better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and to our viewers, thank you so much for watching. Hope you have learned something new. Uh, if you have any questions around security, share those at scale20.com and we'll get those answered by an expert in the security space. See you in the next episode. Thank you.